All right, everyone. So yes, typically we record in our studio. You know that. But sometimes we try to knock things out in the hospital because I don't want to do it when I get home. And so that's why I know there's a lot of ambient sound. We'll have Mike try to, to normalize stuff. But of course, I'm in the hospital. And I'm thankfully, I'm not alone because I get very bored when I'm alone. So I have with me Dr. Lickrad, who's one of our family medicine OB providers. And Anna, we have a great time, right? We sure do. You know, that's one of the things. Look, I didn't train with this. I mean, we lived in our little boxes. The OB people were in one place, family medicine in the other. But I'm very thankful because um, our residents are great and, and they're super evidence-based. And these relationships that we have with each other, I think it, it really is a, a lot of fun. Uh, and look at all the experience that we get. So uh, Anna just came back from an international trip. Where were you, Anna? I was in Poland. So it's all these experiences that, that you get, right? You get abroad, you bring it back to the, these four walls, and, and I think our, our residents are better for it. I mean, we, we kind of pass that on. Uh, anyway, Anna, I think you do a great job. Anyway, say hi to the rest of our podcast family. Hello, podcast family. All right, let's get back to our message. Let's boogie. Let's let's get this party started. Ha! On June 27, 2023, researchers published a population-based analysis of the prevalence of iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia in females in the U.S. who are between the ages of 12 and 21 years. This study spanned from 2003 to 2020. What they found was pretty staggering. Almost 40% of American teenage girls and young women had iron deficiency. This was published in JAMA. Now, this is the first research to look at iron deficiency in young women and adolescent girls. Iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia are both common underappreciated conditions with significant morbidity and mortality despite widespread and easily available and effective treatment. Iron deficiency is the most common micronutrient deficiency in the entire world and is the most frequent cause of anemia. Historically, the focus of screening has been on preschool-aged and pregnant females. Listen to this. The CDC and Prevention recommends anemia screening for non-pregnant female adolescents and women every 5 to 10 years. Every 5 to 10 years? That's a decade apart. Whereas the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force doesn't even address screening for these populations. Oh, and that CDC recommendation was from 1998. Yeah, that's right. There's been no update since 1998. Also, guidance from the college from ACOG focuses only on anemia during pregnancy. But now, and here's a clinical pearl. This year, for the first time in its history, the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics, aka FIGO, has issued a recommendation that all women and girls who menstruate should regularly be screened for iron deficiency, not just for anemia, but for iron deficiency, and not just in pregnancy. This was recently picked up by a story in the New York Times being published online on October the 17th, 2023. And as point of reference, we're taping this on October the 20th, 2023. And here's another clinical pearl. It's completely possible for someone with normal hemoglobin levels to still have iron deficiencies. We've got to change our mindset about what iron deficiency may look like. 
So in this episode, we're going to address the new FIGO guidelines and review why a, quote, screening CBC, end quote, just doesn't have it, just doesn't have the sensitivity to detect iron deficiency in reproductive age women. And we're also going to review the appropriate screening test for this condition, and we'll review basic iron physiology. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yes, this thing is actually making its rounds on the media. We mentioned the New York Times, and it was also on NBC Nightly News. So it's amazing because this story like didn't just come out. I mean, one of the articles that we quoted, of course, was over the summer of 2023. But then that was followed very quickly with the FIGO update. So yes, very timely. I know, I know. I mean, it sounds kind of boring, right? I mean, iron deficiency, does that really matter? Do they even have any symptoms? The short answer to both of those is yes. Yes, it does matter. And yes, they have symptoms. But it really is an interesting topic. Here's how this went down. So just this morning, as we were rounding, I was talking to the residents. I said, hey, FIGO came out with this new recommendation about iron deficiency, uh, which is separate from iron deficiency anemia. So let me ask you all, how do you all check for iron deficiency? And almost unanimously, right, without thinking, the first thing that came out is, oh, iron deficiency, I, I, I get a CBC and I see if their H&H is okay. Uh, and then they started thinking, wait a minute, that's for iron deficiency anemia, but that doesn't really check for iron deficiency, right? And then we had this conversation. And I've done this very thing. I, I mean, in our young reproductive age patients, they come in, I'm here for my annual, I'm like, fantastic. You know, we'll get your pap smear based on uh, ASCCP guidelines. We'll do thyroid screen if necessary. You know, we do the whole screen. Are you safe in your relationship, depression, everything else, right? And then they say, oh, I'm worried about, you know, I was told in the past I was iron deficient. I'm like, no problem. We'll get what? A, C, B, C. And I've messaged patients back like, oh, you're worried about iron deficiency. Hey, but your H and H is good. Um, so there's no evidence of anemia. You see how we've, we cross those things? There's no evidence of iron deficiency because there's no anemia. Um, is that right, though? The answer is no. <laughs> I mean, if you find a low H&H and they're anemic, the most likely cause is iron deficiency. But if the H&H is normal, that does not mean that they do not have iron deficiency. That's one of the take-home pearls, guys. Those are two separate morbid conditions. It really does make sense. But as life happens, we're in a hurry or we're trying to order the right test that sounds like it's right at the moment. Then we step back at the end of the day and we're like, oh, did, did I order that? <laughs> it's happened to me. I mean, I'm sure it happens to you. If it doesn't, just wait because it will. Uh, but it all has to do with, with the ability, the sensitivity of a CBC to detect iron deficiency. Again, if it does, specificity is good, but the sensitivity is lacking because you can live a long time iron deficient until, boom, now spills over to your H&H. 
it's kind of like screening for insulin resistance, right? Somebody in our Facebook family just messaged me not long ago, hey, what do, you, what do I like to use for insulin resistance uh, checking or screening? And I like uh, the HOMA IR, right? Because you can plug it in on a little uh, iPhone calculator, uh, fasting insulin, fasting glucose. Uh, you put in a little, uh, sometimes it asks for patient characteristics and it boom, just kicks out the uh, homeostatic, uh, assessment, uh, a, a model for insulin resistance, right? HOMA IR, even though there's a lot of other options. The point is, if you're looking for insulin resistance, look for insulin resistance. But people check hemoglobin A1C for that, all right? Uh, and, and so, yes, hemoglobin A1C can find impaired glucose tolerance slash insulin resistance. Absolutely, right? Before it becomes greater than hemoglobin A1C of 6.5, which is diagnostic of diabetes, Right? We know that. However, it takes a long time to go through insulin resistance. So, you know, this woman is living with her insulin resistance, insulin resistance, hemoglobin A1C is hanging out, it's hanging out, and then finally it breaks, the dam breaks, now it goes up to that borderline watershed area of impaired glucose tolerance, um, and then it finally crosses over to diabetes. My point is, it lacks that sensitivity, all right? Just like CBC lacks that sensitivity because even though H&H can be normal for all of this time where there's actually iron deficiency until at some point the body says, all right, you know what? I'm out. I mean, you're just not giving me any iron here. You're trying to help me build this house and I don't have any bricks, a.k.a. the house is red blood cells, the bricks are iron. Guys, my analogies make sense in my head. I hope they make sense to yours. So, so this is the idea is that they are two separate conditions. Now, can they coexist? Absolutely. As we said in the intro, iron deficiency is the most common cause of anemia in reproductive age women. Now, if you have anemia in an elderly female, you know, so severe anemia in a seven-year-old, oh my goodness, please rule out malignancy or severe nutritional uh, deficiency. You got to look for something else, right? And we're going to talk about the sources of anemia here in a minute. But in a young reproductive age woman with no chronic medical conditions, then it's likely uh, that the iron deficiency is a result of heavy menstrual bleeding uh, that can happen for, for a long period of time before it manifests into iron deficiency anemia. So all of this random talking and circular discussion here, because I don't have notes, I'm just going through a skeleton outline is that iron deficiency anemia is one thing and iron deficiency in and of itself is another thing and they have very different but similar uh, symptomatology and morbidities so yes it is bad to have iron deficiency anemia we get that but it's also bad just to have iron deficiency because we're going to review here how that affects basic physiology all right you can't be this nutritionally deficient in a key micronutrient and, and your biological cellular functions are going to be completely legit all right they're going to feel it so that's the idea here iron deficiency by itself is real and it's a problem forcing figo now to make again the first of its kind, new guidelines that, yeah, we really need to be checking for this and doing it in the right way, not just in pregnancy. Uh, and doing it every five to 10 years is probably too long. I mean, can you imagine five to 10 years? My goodness. Not like anything changes in 10 years, right? I mean, what kind of recommendation is that? And I'm very CDC friendly, all right? But my goodness, can you bring it down a little bit? We're going to talk about this. What, is this. what does the FIGO mean when it says should be regularly screened for iron deficiency? We're going to talk about that. 
So this whole thing of iron deficiency without anemia is actually a real thing, okay? So it's either been called IDWA, which is iron deficiency without anemia. That's pretty easy. Or it's also been called in the literature NAID. NAID. You figure that out? N-A-I-D. That's non-anemic iron deficiency. So whether you call it iron deficiency without anemia or non-anemic iron deficiency, it's the same thing, all right? Uh, but that's what confuses some of the literature because just call it one thing. But yes, it's been called IDWA as well as NAID, the exact same thing. It's also been termed uh, iron depletion asymptomatic or latent iron deficiency or depleted iron stores. All of these are the same terms that have to do with low iron. And we're going to talk about that, low serum iron and or low, low, low storage, which is ferritin, uh, without anemia. All right. So it is a real thing. It's called NAID, non-anemic iron deficiency, or IDWA, which is iron deficiency without anemia. We have done several episodes on this channel about iron deficiency, anemia, and pregnancy. You can go back in the archives and look at that. And we know, of course, that it's not just an issue for mom increasing her risk of blood transfusion after delivery, but iron deficiency in and of itself is linked to some real adverse obstetrical outcomes. I mean, babies just don't do as well in the setting of iron deficiency. The pregnancy and the postpartum interval are not the focus of this episode, though. So just remember, we're talking about adolescent and reproductive age women when they come in for just well women care uh, or just a vague complaint. And I'll give you some of those symptoms here in a minute. But that can include, uh, you know, fatigue and OS, assuming that it's not some other viral condition uh, or autoimmune condition. But I'll, I'll get into symptoms in just a minute. But remember, while screening for iron deficiency anemia is important in pregnancy, this topic right now in this episode has to do with the non-pregnant patient, all right? While iron deficiency can affect individuals of all ages and genders, there is a disproportionate burden of prevalence borne by girls and women of young reproductive age, mainly related to menstrual and pregnancy-related losses. Iron deficiency without anemia has been associated with impaired physical and cognitive function and is also associated with congestive heart failure in the older population. Again, we're going to cover the symptoms in more detail in just a minute. I just have to remind everybody uh, and myself, honestly, that iron deficiency isn't just a lab test. I mean, it really is linked to some altered physiology, even without anemia, all right? Remember, those are separate conditions. Now, this whole issue of iron deficiency as its own pathological condition linked to altered metabolism and physiology was a subject of a 2021 publication by the Royal College of Physicians in their journal called Clinical Medicine. Of course, I'll put the reference on our reference list. That article's title is appropriately called, quote, Iron Deficiency Without Anemia a diagnosis that matters, end quote. See, that's a pretty cool title, right? I mean, just in and of itself right there, it kind of tells you the whole thing. Um, even though you don't have it manifested as an altered H&H, iron deficiency without anemia is still a diagnosis that has impact. 
This article reminds us that low iron isn't just the etiology of anemia, but it also negatively affects the entire person's physiology uh, and metabolic status. A randomized control trial also was published by Melanovsky et al. that showed that iron deficiency actually reduces aerobic respiration and citric acid cycle enzyme activity in enhanced heart failure. Now, this is not in the asymptomatic patient. Okay, this is in patients with heart failure. But here's the interesting thing, just to make the point that iron deficiency affects at the cellular level and then aka, obviously by default, uh, it affects organs because once those patients had iron supplementation, they had improved myocardial function just because they were iron deficient. That data was published in the European Journal of Heart Failure in 2017. All right, so we get that. So iron deficiency is probably not good if you've got a heart condition. But outside of that, it also is a big deal just for the population and as a public health measure. So listen to this. This is kind of cool. There's plenty of published commentaries on this whole issue of iron deficiency. That's why it's making its rounds on the news, right, like it did on NBC News, as we mentioned in the intro. Um, but this is really a big issue from a public health standpoint because studies have shown that while iron deficiency anemia has its own issues on one hand, just iron deficiency by itself can have really serious uh, morbidities because of that altered cellular function, okay? And again, that's not my opinion. That very, very statement that this is a, a public health matter was published in April of 2020 in the Journal of Gynecological and Reproductive Endocrinology and Metabolism. Let me say that again, because that's a pretty big title for a journal. It is Gynecological and Reproductive Endocrinology and Metabolism. That is the journal of the ISGE. So your next thought is, what the heck is the ISGE? <laughs> so I'm going to tell you. But honestly, there's all these societies out there, and they all have a role. They all are very, very helpful. Uh, and they all have their own journal, of course. Uh, this is not one that we usually quote because it's much more on the nutrition slash metabolism side, but it's still very good. This society, again, is ISGE. That is the International Society for Gynecological Endocrinology. And, of course, for our endo society here, it is ASRM. That's mainly where we uh, quote our experts from. But this is the International Society of Gynecological Endocrinology. And it also has a very, very big presence, of course, uh, in the metabolism world, hence why the title is also includes the word metabolism. That article title from April of 2020 is Iron Deficiency Without Anemia, Indications for Treatment. All right, now that we've covered that, let's just quickly go through the ways that iron deficiency can actually come about, right? Some etiologies. Now, we already mentioned the most likely for us as women's healthcare providers because in the young, adolescent, and otherwise reproductive age woman, uh, they have an obvious source of iron loss, which is menstruation, right? So we get that. But there's other ways, of course, that iron is lost. Iron is also lost from the body through sloughed skin cells and sloughed enteroids sites from the gut. And any form of bleeding, of course, can give the patient some kind of iron deficiency. But as we've already mentioned, heavy menstrual bleeding is the main driver of high rates of iron deficiency among adolescent and adult non-pregnant women. And the other more uh, uh, outlier causes, of course, includes poor diet. Now, I don't mean poor like a bad diet. I mean, I mean iron poor, all right? So vegetarian and vegan diets, which are very good for you, but they don't have any iron capacity. So that, that's what I mean by poor. Please don't send me an ugly message that 
the vegetarian slash vegan diet is poor. That's not what I'm talking about. It's very good for you, but it is iron poor, all right? Obviously, some other causes include pregnancy, which is not the focus of this episode, and cancer, which is a whole other issue, typically presenting with some other condition. Um, although some patients have been diagnosed as, oh my gosh, we, we incidentally found cancer uh, when the only presentation was iron deficiency. But again, Heavy menstrual bleeding is the main causative factor here, the main insider in our patient population. So we just finished covering the most likely etiologies of iron deficiency in our population, right? Young, otherwise healthy, reproductive age women. But here's a question. Do these women actually have symptoms? We get that iron deficiency anemia because they're anemic. They can have some symptoms. But what about those without anemia? Well, the short answer is yeah. Yes. Yes, they do. The symptoms of iron deficiency, even without anemia, are very nonspecific, though, and that's the problem, right? They're very nebulous, they are very broad, and they can include things like shortness of breath, they get brain fog, this fatigue, lightheadedness, uh, increased sensitivity to cold temperatures. They may even have, in some studies, uh, heart palpitations. And in some publications, it's also been linked to restless leg syndrome. So, of course, these symptoms can be caused by a variety of other things, right? I mean, it can be hypothyroidism, other vitamin deficiencies. It could be depression. It could be some autoimmune disorder. But one of the easiest things to check for, especially in the menstruating reproductive age uh, patient, is, is to check for iron deficiency. I mean, it's one thing that's easily fixable, right? We're going to talk about the workup here coming up next. But remember, symptoms are, are very broad, um, but it's an easy screen, and the CBC is not it. CBC can be helpful if it finds it, but even if your H&H is normal, it does not rule out the condition. Well, we're definitely going to cover the workup here in just a minute, but I said a little bit earlier that we were going to talk about some basic iron physiology, okay? And the reason we have to do this first is because when we talk about the workup, it's going to make a lot more sense. That's logical, right? So before we get into the lab eval of iron deficiency, let's go over just super briefly some basic iron facts for the body and for physiological function. I promise it's not going to be boring. It's actually going to be pretty interesting. Remember that iron has both a storage pool and a functional pool, all right? Storage, functional. The storage pool is in the reticuloendothelial system that consists mainly of the liver, it's the spleen and lymph nodes, right? So liver stored there. The functional pool consists of the red blood cells, bone marrow, and cardiac and skeletal muscle. Now, iron is absorbed in the duodenum by very specific transporters, and it's carried in the serum, in the blood, by transferrin molecules to the storage and functional pools. Iron deficiency can be either absolute or functional. All right, so remember, so iron in the body, two places, stored, and then functional supply. And then iron deficiency can be either absolute, which we're going to define in a minute, and or functional, all right? Absolute iron deficiency is exactly what it sounds like. That's when the storage pool is low, all right? So the storehouse has little goods. So iron is deficient either because of reduced intake, uh, increased needs like with, with cancer, or reduced absorption or excessive loss, a.k.a. heavy menstrual bleeding, all right? So that's where you dip into your storage pool, and so you have 
absolute iron deficiency. Now, absolute iron deficiency also causes low iron levels in the functional pool. Well, that makes sense, right? I mean, it's, it's low, absolutely. So you have absolute iron deficiency and you have functional, but absolute obviously spills over into the functional iron deficiency. Now let's get into the functional side, all right? The functional side is more of the result of inflammation or cytokine or hepcidin activity, all right? You remember we did a podcast not long ago where we said, ironically, if you take iron every day, which we'll talk about in a minute, that actually jacks them up even more because you turn on hepcidin, which closes the gate, right? So this is where you get into the functional causes. We're like, hey, everywhere the system is otherwise good, but because of some functional issue like a chronic inflammation, aka that's where you get the anemia of chronic disease, um, it's related more to, to the ability of iron to get absorbed, all right? Now, there are two ways in which this functional deficiency can happen. One is by a true block in the system, right? So something is blocking absorption in the duodenum, uh, like maybe with gastric surgery or some other uh, GI condition, GI pathology. So the first way that functional uh, iron deficiency can happen is because there's a there's a block in the absorption pathway. And then the second way that it happens is is based on inflammation, uh, which hey, the, the the channels can be okay, but because of chronic inflammatory states, uh, the overall transport and the overall ability of the body to use it is decreased. All right. So, so like the duodenum is like, hey, it's not my deal. It's getting through. It's something else. And that's where chronic inflammatory conditions uh, and cytokines and hepcidin can, can uh, play effect to make it functionally de depletion, de depleted. All right. The other kind of functional deficiency is where iron stores are actually okay. They, they, they are, the storehouse is full, but they're not getting released for whatever reason, all right? That's where you have this, that's why labs and iron studies are so important because they're like, hey, your ferritin is great, your storage is okay, but oddly enough, your total iron binding capacity is very high because that's a functional issue, all right? So functional iron deficiency is either because of malabsorption or something uh, blocking the ability for iron to get in, usually because of hepcidin or inflammation. And then you have the second way that it's functional, which is where your storehouse is okay. I mean, you've got normal stores uh, uh, that are built up, uh, aka your ferritin is normal, but it's not being released for some reason. And so you, you have a high total iron binding capacity at the same time that you have high ferritin levels. Okay, so that's why, and we're already leading into the workup here, that's why getting a full set of iron studies is so important to see the whole picture, not just a CBC for a hemoglobin and hematocrit. All right, we're getting ready to wrap this up, so hang in there, guys, because I am making the point here that the CBC, which has been historically the go-to to search for iron deficiency, uh, we're making the point here that that's not enough. It's good for iron deficiency anemia, but obviously not right, not not exact enough for just plain old iron deficiency. And once again, th this isn't my opinion. This was actually published way back before FIGO gave its 2023 update in 2014 in the publication by the American Society of Hematology in their journal, Blood. All right. So this goes all the way back almost a decade. So let me stop here for a minute. So 
I think it's interesting. If I was a member of the American Society of Hematology, uh, I would be looking at FIGO and just shaking my head and going, mm, 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 mm. well, you don't say. <laughs> you say now we should be checking for iron deficiency in people. Fantastic. Nice job, FIGO. Better late than never because we had that idea in 2014. So you see, some things in medicine, right? What's our tagline? Medicine moves fast. And then at some point, then you other things, you're like, mm, didn't the American Society of Hematology kind of give this recommendation in 2014? And FIGO now in 2023 is like, yeah, let's do that. Not necessarily fast there. <laughs> so in general, come on, let's all agree, medicine does move fast. But sometimes the wheel of change uh, can be a little slow, all right? So back in 2014, let me read you this quote in the American Society of Hematology's journal, Blood. Uh, here's what they say about this whole thing. Quote, screening for hemoglobin or CBC alone may miss over half of patients with iron deficiency. End quote. Half. And once again, see, so FIGO came out. FIGO gets all the press, right? New York Times. It's in NBC News. And again, I'd be like, with the, if I was in the American Society of Hematology, I'm like, well, thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Great recommendation. We had that 10 years ago. In that journal from the American Society of Hematology, they remind us that ferritin is the most sensitive and the most specific biomarker for assessing iron deficiency. So that's a clinical pearl. The target ferritin level recommended by the World Health Organization for non-pregnant menstruating women is 15 micrograms per liter. 15. However, there's been a lot of criticism about that, that, man, that's way too low. And most people argue that the baseline for better function for adequate cellular and metabolic control, that the level really should be twice that at 30 micrograms per liter. So if you ever asked what's the normal ferritin, while the WHO, because remember, WHO is looking at a worldwide perspective, all right, including areas that, that are very nutrient and nutrition poor. But for, for most other countries, for most developed countries, ferritin level should be anywhere between 30 and 50 micrograms per liter. So 30 is the floor, all right? And that's typically what's used in the assessment for iron deficiency anemia during pregnancy, okay? So on the pregnancy side, which isn't our focus, remember, but it's a hemoglobin less than 11, which then makes you draw a ferritin level. And if the ferritin is less than 30, then you can say it's iron deficient. But if the ferritin is normal at greater than 30, then you are thinking about something like, again, a functional issue, like potentially is it a hemoglobin uh, uh, abnormality, a hemoglobinopathy, is it alpha thalassemia, or based on the MCV, if the MCV is, is high, greater than 90, then is that potentially a vitamin uh, B12 or folate issue, all right? So remember that uh, in pregnancy and in the non-pregnant individual, even though the World Health Organization says it's 15 for ferritin, most uh, developed countries and the U.S. and the U.K. all use the same value, which is a, a lower cutoff of 30 micrograms per liter. So even though ferritin is the most sensitive and the specific biomarker, remember that a complete picture includes things like serum iron, uh, transferrin saturation, and total iron binding capacity. 
So a CBC, all to say CBC is not enough. If you really want to look for iron deficiency, which really is a public health issue, especially in our population, it should include ferritin, serum iron, um, total iron binding capacity. Uh, and if you want to, you can get a uh, transferrin saturation. Oh boy, we made it to the end. So let me just end this episode by giving you the new FIGO 2023 Rex. All right, we're going to knock these out. They're just rapid fire and then we'll call it a day. Okay, I think we've made our point enough. But it's interesting. I'm glad that FIGO said we got to do this much more frequently than every five to 10 years. But that in that recommendation, there's also a little gap. Let me explain, all right? So the first FIGO rec is... Ideally, all reproductive age girls and women should be, quote, regularly, end quote, tested for iron deficiency starting from menarche and throughout their life, preferably by measuring serum ferritin and or where chronic inflammation is known or suspected, transferrin saturation. All right. So that's the first rec. So do it regularly. The problem, of course, is that they did not define what regularly means. But unlike the CDC, I promise you that regularly is more frequent than every 5 to 10 years. The second rec is, quote, when iron deficiency is identified in non-pregnant women and girls of reproductive age, the symptom of heavy menstrual bleeding should be suspected and if identified, appropriately investigated and treated. All right, that makes sense. That takes us back to another FIGO thing, which ACOG adopted, of course, which is the palm coin system, all right? Yes, that was also first uh, put out through FIGO, and that was Dr. Mac Monroe. So Dr. Mac Monroe uh, is out of California. I'm very proud to say one of my mentors through AAGL. He's just a fascinating guy. I think he's actually Canadian by birth. Anyway, but he's now in, in, in the Kaiser system, or used to be in the Kaiser system. I think he's still in the Kaiser system. And he's referenced in, in the New York Times uh, article. So Dr. Mac Monroe, fantastic. Uh, just a brilliant, brilliant man. And helped launch and design the palm coin system. All right. The third uh, FIGO recommendation is the first-line intervention for iron deficiency and mild to moderate iron deficiency. Anemia, of course, is no guesswork there is oral iron therapy. But FIGO does recommend, of course, that oral iron not be by multiple times during the day dosing and ideally should be done uh, with specific instructions like every other day uh, uh, ingestion to help with the hepcidin issue. All right. And again, we mentioned that in the past that if you take iron every day, you actually decrease absorption because per every oral dose taken, hepcidin comes up and it kind of closes the gate as to prevent iron overload. Now it's deeper than that, but the short of it is that by taking it every other day, you maximize absorption because of the transporter uh, uh, ability in the gut, in the duodenum, and because of hepcidin. So those are the three main references there. Number one, yes, young women starting from menarche should be screened and they should be screened regularly for iron deficiency, not just iron deficiency anemia. Second, uh, if that's the case in this a young reproductive age, then consider heavy menstrual bleeding as the etiology. Of course, look for other things. And then the third is the appropriate treatment, which is first line is oral iron. And if that fails and they recommend uh, 60 to 90 days of therapy, then consider um, IV iron supplementation or look for other reasons why it's not working. All right. So those are the three main FIGO reps and we are calling it a day. All right. I hope that wasn't boring because I really think there's value in this whole message. All right. 
Iron deficiency anemia is one problem on the right-hand side. On the left-hand side, you have iron deficiency as its own pathological condition. So FIGO, great job in calling attention to this. Even though another professional organization had first brought this up, in 2014 as a public health issue, <laughs> but better late than never. So anyway, there is the difference between iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia, and they are not synonymous. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.